Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Mr. Jones. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yes, Robbie. Thank you for the uh, invite. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. My name is Barry Jones. I am a uh, teacher, a high school history teacher. I've been teaching now for about 25 years. And uh, about 25 years ago, I started getting interested in the JFK assassination, but not in the way that you might think. It... Uh, it came as a result of my students, really, and their questions. When it comes to the assassination, where do you particularly focus? Every researcher I've talked to has had a specific angle, either something that got them interested into doing it, whether hearing it from a friend or coming across another historical event, or they chose one aspect of the case that obviously maybe didn't have as much research into it compared to all the others. I know the medical evidence is usually what people go to, but there's so many things about the JFK assassination that are fascinating. Well, I started in the direction that uh, probably most people do, and I'm looking at all the details and details and details, and the assassination just didn't make sense to me. I, I couldn't see the forest for the trees because there are so many details. And I think sometimes it kind of reminds me of that movie, Class Action. And, uh, you know, where the prosecutor doesn't want to reveal the exculpatory evidence. So he, he has to, he has to divulge it to the uh, defense. And so he backs up a semi-trailer full of documents to the defense. And somewhere hidden in that semi-trailer is one or two documents that he doesn't want the defense to find. And I feel that way sometimes when I'm looking into all the details of the JFK assassination. There are so many angles, as you said, and you can get lost in the details. So for me, I'm more of a 50,000 foot view guy. I like to see the big picture and I wanna see how it fits together and impacts history. How events, because history doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are things that lead up to, in this case, the, the JFK assassination. And then there are things that follow and I know when I teach my history classes, my students, I start getting into details and their eyes glaze over and they miss it. So what I try to do is paint them a picture of what life would have been like if it hadn't happened or what events made it happen and what the result has been and how is it relevant today? Because you know, people think, you know, 60 years ago, the JFK assassination, what relevance does it have to today? Well, if you know the, the story, why it happened, how it happened, it has a tremendous relevance to what's going on today. I mean, most people bring up the example that in 1963 was basically a turning point, and you can track every single event, I would say, or every weird cover-up scandal from that moment. And I think those are probably mostly people that believe it was the military-industrial complex. 
I am on the fence still about that. I that's I where I hardcore believe just because if you look at figures like Alan Dulles, you look at just corruption connections with the CIA and the mafia. But I definitely believe that they were part of the cover up. I mean, there are issues with just the assassination in general. If we talk about the Warren Commission, I mean, the investigation didn't do a great job or a, what a normal investigation should be doing, especially one about the president and it only having one suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald, it seemed like there was not really even a chance to look and see if there was this alleged patsy or this innocent angle. And I'm curious, what can you take me through like maybe your first event or your first breakdown of something that you can easily just look at and be like, there's something wrong here. It's very, very crucial. We should look into this. Yeah, well, I, uh, I got into this because I was teaching Watergate scandal and uh, I could never answer the question why my students would ask me, well, why would Nixon do it? And so I started researching it, never dreaming I was going to, it was going to lead me back to the JFK assassination. So if you know the details of the, the Watergate scandal and how it began, you know, Nixon called it a third rate burglary. And, you know, it was a botched job, there's no question. And uh, it wasn't actually the first attempt, it was the fourth attempt. And uh, long story short, they got caught. And the White House went into immediate cover-up mode. I mean, the burglars had White House phone numbers in their address books. They had $100 bills, new paper, sequenced bills, uh, one of them had a walkie-talkie, which means there's somebody outside the building acting as a lookout. They all got high-priced lawyers before they'd made a phone call. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There was a, uh, uh, and so the White House was immediately implicated. The uh, address, in, in the address book, there was a White House phone number to a man named E. Howard Hunt, who worked for the White House. And so Nixon came back from his Miami vacation to handle things, I guess, and uh, immediately starts calling meetings and this and that. And one of the burglars, whose name was James McCord, uh, sort of broke open this whole thing when he, uh, yeah, he, he was being, he, one of the attorneys that was hired to represent him was F. Lee Bailey. F. Lee Bailey was probably the prominent criminal attorney, at least for the, uh, you know, the rich and famous at that time. And he was based out of Washington, D.C. And, and, uh, and he had on his, uh, in his firm, a man named Daniel P. Sheehan. And Daniel P. Sheehan had been recruited by Bailey to come in and help with this Watergate case. And uh, so his job was to monitor the hearings, to monitor everything that was going on. And unbeknownst to Daniel P. Sheehan, when he takes the case, he knows he's got a famous client. He has no idea that F. Lee Bailey's firm also represents one other client whose name is Santos Traficante. Santos Traficante is a big fish. You're talking about one of the preeminent mob bosses down in Florida at the time. And uh, uh, he also finds, that's one of the nuggets that he finds out. Another nugget that he finds out is that F. Lee Bailey, the man he's working for, is a CIA attorney. Now, that's off the books. He's what they call an index four attorney. And what that means, there's four attorneys in Washington on an index that are on call anytime to represent a CIA operative caught 
operating domestically because as we know they were not allowed to operate domestically that would be uh illegal that's and what so, that's what i said and then i had nigel west who wrote about the intelligence agencies he studied for so long he's like oh that's just a common myth i'm like it's in their handbook i'm like it's a myth that's written down yeah it's in their charter and uh they're not so put now an interesting comment that you made earlier about 63 being a kind of a line of demarcation. I think up until 63, the CIA primarily did work for overseas, but that's why the JFK assassination is so pivotal, so important because they got away with a domestic uh, operation and they have been operating domestically ever since. That's the line of demarcation. Before 63, it was in Vietnam, it was in uh, Iran, it was in Guatemala, it was in Central America, it was Cuba, it was all around the world. And then 63, uh, they brought it home. Everything they learned how to do overseas, rigging elections, assassinate political assassinations, coup d'etats, uh, propaganda, psych warfare, all that stuff they brought home. And they've been operating here ever since. So, yes, it's a very important operation what happened in 63. Anyway, back to my story. Uh, so he finds out that his boss is covertly a CIA. He's masquerading as a private attorney. And he does have a private attorney's firm. But he also has a covert responsibility to the CIA to represent uh, a CIA operative caught operating domestically. This is why he ends up with James as James McCord as his client. And uh, so in the process of trying to learn about James McCord's activities, why Nixon would order a, a break in into Watergate, et cetera, et cetera. F. Lee Bailey sits down with Santos Tropicante to get the real story. And Santos Traficante, it's important to know, felt at liberty to talk to F. Lee Bailey. And he did so often because he knew that Bailey was a CIA attorney. He knew, first of all, he had the attorney-client privilege. But secondly, he knew that he was talking to a man who would cover up for the CIA anything that uh, needed to be covered up. That was his job. So the story I'm fixing to tell you is straight from Santos Traficante through Daniel P. Sheehan and the F. Lee Bailey Law Firm. It's, a, it's not a story that a lot of people know, but it really puts the pieces of the puzzle together and goes right back to the JFK assassination. And more importantly for me at the time, it answered the question, why? And uh, so if you're interested, I will, I'll tell you the yeah. story. Okay. Well, uh, Santos Traficante, it goes back to uh, 47. 1947, the National Security Act is passed, and it creates the CIA. It creates the National Security NSA. It creates the uh, NSC, the National Security Council. And most people don't realize that underneath the CIA, now that was all public knowledge, but there was a covert or a classified part to the bill that people don't know. It's one of the reasons why people mistakenly think the CIA is not allowed to do covert, covert ops. There's, they were only created to do, to analyze intelligence and to make recommendations to the president. That's because that's what we knew. That's the public part of the bill. 
there's a private part or a classified part to the bill that creates a subcommittee called the 5412 committee. And the 5412 committee specifically chartered with the responsibility to carry out covert ops. This is based on the Doolittle Report after World War II, uh, authored by William Pauley. Remember that name, it's gonna come up again. So William Pauley does this big analysis of the OSS during World War II. Was it effective? Did it work? We've shut it down. Should we restart it? Should we reconstitute it as something else, et cetera, et cetera? And he makes a recommendation. He says the covert part of the OSS during World War II served a very, very important function. And to completely close it down and, and eliminate it would be foolhardy, especially as we're entering the Cold War period. We need a covert uh, arm of the government, just like the Soviets have. And so that was the recommendation of the Doolittle Report. And as a result, in the 47 National Security Act, they added this classified 5412 committee to do just that. Nobody knew about it, except those that are supposed to know. According to the charter, the person responsible for the 5412 committee who chairs it is the vice president, whoever the vice president is at the time. Well, in 1952 to 1960, the vice president was Richard Nixon. And so he chartered, or he, he chaired the 5412 committee, and he authorized the beginning of our covert uh, operations. Uh, and again, as I say, they were overseas. But uh, in 1953, Operation Ajax in Iran, where we overthrew the, the Shah uh, and installed our, our guy. Uh, in 1954, it was in Guatemala, P PB success, the, another overthrow. In 1959, it was Operation 40. This is in Cuba. And this is where everything starts to go sideways. So it's important to know that the beginning of this uh, opera of this uh, committee, this 5412 committee, it's pretty much run by Nixon. He's like the, the secret Svengali of the world. He he gets to he has unlimited money, unlimited budget, unlimited power to launch these covert ops anywhere he sees fit, all in the name of fighting communism. If you can somehow tie it to communism, then you are justified. You're going to get a rubber stamp and you're going to be able to go and do these uh, covert ops. So this is uh, and, and included in that were, were times where we killed people, where we authorized assassinations of people. If you look in uh, 1956, in the Dominican Republic, we took out Galindez. It's what they call extraordinary rendition. We don't necessarily take him out, but we set him up so that to be taken out. We were protecting him and then we removed the protection. We took out his pilot because we were afraid he was going to spill the beans on what we had done with Galindez. Uh, and so that's the background to as we approach the 60 election. And of course, Nixon's running for president. And everyone's assuming that he's going to win the presidency. He's got the experience. He's, he's served eight years under a popular president. Times are good in America. Uh, we do have this uh, communist threat, but he's a certified hardliner against communists. He's not soft. He's a cold warrior. 
he's running against a guy who uh, has very little experience, and the Kennedy name is not going to work for him in the South in, in a lot of places. Uh, and there was this sense of entitlement with the Kennedys and things. And his daddy had gotten himself in some hot water in World War II with his Nazi sympathizing, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the, the assumption was by most people that Nixon was going to win in 60. After the Michigan primary, when uh, Nelson Rockefeller, or when Rockefeller dropped out, uh, Nixon was the presumptive nominee. And Operation 40, which had been launched in 59, as an attempt to get Castro out of Cuba was not working fast enough for Nixon. It was mainly crop burnings. It was burning bridges. It was sabotage. It was things of that nature. If they could take out Castro, great, but it wasn't happening quick enough. What he wanted was a magic bullet, so to speak. He wanted something that would happen quick before the election that he could take credit for. Everybody wanted Castro gone. Okay, this wasn't like a Democrat-Republican thing. Everybody wanted him gone. He was a threat in our hemisphere, 90 miles off the coast of Florida. So he makes a phone call. This is after he becomes the presumptive nominee. So he knows he's going to be, uh, he's the Republican pick. He picks up the phone and he calls as chair of the 5412 committee, a buddy of his. His name is Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, and, and you may have heard of Howard Hughes. This was a famous guy in this time, this era. He was a billionaire inventor, a pilot. He'd worked with the National Security Council closely uh, because he, he, had a, he had a brilliant mind. And he had invented things like he had invented the Spruce Goose, which is this huge airplane made out of balsa wood. People didn't think but he, you know, he could even get off the ground. He, he managed to fly the thing. It became the prototype for the C-5A transport or cargo plane. He built a corporation called the Summa Corporation, which was building uh, vehicles and different things for the NSC, such as a submarine retrieval vehicle. He had money. He, he supported different political candidates. He, he, was, he was just one of these guys that was like an E.F. Hutton type of guy. He was off the books. He was a private citizen, but he was in with the national security apparatus, making things for them, building things for them through his corporation. And because he had money, he had a lot of friends. And one of his friends was Richard Nixon. And Nixon had a relationship going back with Howard Hughes years. He'd gotten a $250,000 loan from Howard Hughes earlier for his brother, uh, they were on a first name basis. He could pick up the phone and Howard Hughes would answer the phone. So he calls Howard Hughes and he says, I got a, a project and I, it's got to be off the books, but I want you to handle it for me. You have all the connections. He says, I want you to set up a secret assassination team to take out Castro. Operation 40 is not working quick enough. I want this all consummated before the election. And uh, they go into all the details. Well, Howard Hughes calls his attorney in. His name is Bob Mayhew. And he tells Bob Mayhew, he says, the presumptive president, the next president has asked me to create this uh, assassination team. I'm putting you in charge. Uh, do it. Bob Mayhew calls, makes a call to 
Johnny Rosselli. Johnny Rosselli is the Sam Giancana liaison from Chicago. Sam Giancana is the Chicago boss to the Sands Hotel and to the Desert Inn. These are the two mob hotels controlled by Sam Giancana. And his man out there to keep an eye on things is Johnny Rosselli. And so they know they're going to need to, these are going to be off the books assassins. And so the mob is going to be involved. The CIA, this is not the first time the CIA or the government has contracted with mob to try to kill somebody or carry out an operation. As you'll learn, Operation 40 was basically all made up of mob hitmen and mafia strong people. That's, that's, that was the mob and the CIA back in those days were like two heads of the same coin. They were, it was very incestual. They used each other for different things. So Johnny Rosselli says, well, I like the idea, but uh, we're going to have to have another meeting on this because I've got to get the approval of my boss. I can't make a decision on my own. So they set up a meeting with Sam Giancana, with Bob Mayhew, with Johnny Rosselli. And, and Giancana says, well, that, okay, that sounds like a good idea. He says, but you're talking about Cuba. I, I don't, that's not my territory. My territory is is here in Chicago. Santos Traficante's territory is Cuba, Florida, all that area. We're going to have to get Santos Traficante's approval. So off they go down to Miami to have a meeting at the Fontainebleau Hotel. And it's Santos Traficante, it's Bob Mayhew, it's, it's Johnny Rosselli, it's Sam Giancana. And they discuss everything that Nixon discussed with Howard Hughes. Santos Traficante's not stupid. He says, I don't want to make a decision about this or sign off on this until I know for sure that Nixon is behind this. I'm not going to get hung out to dry on this. So they communicate back to Nixon. Nixon sends to the next meeting at the same hotel, the Fontainebleau, his rep. His name is Sheffield Edwards. Sheffield Edwards is the chief of security for the CIA. This is Nixon's guy. I'm sending you Sheffield Edwards. His presence there at the meeting is confirmation that the vice president, the chair of the 5412 committee, and the presumptive president of the United States is signing off on this operation. I want an assassination team. So Santos Traficante has what he needs, and they began putting together this assassination team. Now, what Santos Traficante does smartly is he recruits to this assassination team all the same people that the CIA had recruited earlier to build Operation 40. Uh, when Operation 40 was created, they went to Santos Traficante and says, give me all your Cubans down there in Miami, the guys who speak Cuban, the guys who look Cuban, the guys who have experienced freedom fighting, the guys who have motive to want to overthrow Castro. We are going to train them and we're going to make them into a little army. This is, by the way, the beginning of the Bay of Pigs deal. And so Traficante, who controls all of that down there, sent him his best men, and they created Operation 40. But they're his guys. But now they're working for the CIA, meaning they're getting paid by the CIA. They work for the CIA. He is, they're basically on loan from Santos Traficante. So now he's building this assassination team, and he says, if I go put uh, independent contractors, such as it were, on this assassination team, I could get hung out to dry. 
when it goes bad, if it goes bad. And these things oftentimes do go bad. So he says, I'm going to recruit the same people back, my guys, from Operation 40. These are CIA employees now. They're sanctioned by the CIA. And the CIA, if this goes south, if it goes bad, can't hang me out to dry because these are hit their people now. And so to cover himself, to cover the mafia, Santos Traficante recruits Operation 40 hitmen. Uh, these are freedom fighters, basically, and puts together this assassination team. It's 15 guys. He even went so far as to tell uh, F. Lee Bailey the names of these 15 guys. And, and I, I won't name them for you. There's 12 Cuban names, but there are three names at the end of the list that are extremely important. Uh, one of them is Bernard Barker. Another one is Eugenio Martinez. And the other one is Virgilio Gonzalez. These three, uh, if you fast forward to 72 in the Watergate burglary, were arrested as Watergate burglars, all right, 10 years later. But these are three added to the other 12 that make up this new assassination team. And now they go about setting up the five bases where they're going to be trained. So the five bases, and you've probably heard about this, uh, I'm sure, because it comes up all the time when you're talking about Lee Harvey Oswald down in New Orleans, places like that. But they spread them out among five bases. The first base was on Swan Island, which is on the east coast of Florida. And the second base is in the Everglades. Its CIA liaison, the one in charge of the Everglades, was E. Howard Hunt. That name will sound familiar as well. Another uh, base was in No Name Key, which is down in the Florida Keys. And its CIA liaison is Frank Sturgis, another Watergate burglar. Uh, the two on Lake Pontchartrain, uh, one was on the north end, the other was on the south end. On the north end is where you hear of Lee Harvey Oswald, Guy Bannister, Clay Shaw, David Ferry, uh, David Atlee Phillips. These are all folks involved in the training of these Operation 40 slash assassination team members. And they're blending. These are Operation 40 bases. So what they're doing is they're hiding these three assassins at each base, five bases total, instant amongst the regular Operation 40 folks. So it's a way to blend them and not attract attention. The uh, training base, every, so, every month, these three men from each base, 15 total, would be picked up by an Operation 40 pilot in a private plane. And that pilot's name was Tosh Plumley. He, uh, his name's going to come up again. And off they would go in this plane out to Fort, uh, it's hard to say this name, but Huachaca, Arizona. Fort Huachaca, Arizona. It's an army base. It's a military intelligence base. These 15 men would disembark the plane. They would sign in as government employees, and then they would disappear. That plane would take them from Arizona across the border into Mexico, down to a ranch in Oaxaca, Mexico. This ranch was owned by Clint Murchison, Jr. Clint Murchison's he had ranches all over the Southwest, but this ranch was in such an out-of-the-way location. It was a way to hide people. And here is where all the training took place. They called it the Triangular Fire Team. 
They were training with high-powered weapons to hit a moving target from distance. Some of this should start to ring a bell as these puzzle pieces come together. <laughs> and uh, so they're training down there and they're being trained by two CIA officers. These are not uh, Cuban freedom fighters here. These are CIA. So the whole operation, first of all, is sanctioned at the very top by Nixon. And then all the way through, it's being run as an official Operation 5412, an offshoot of Operation 40, which is CIA sanctioned. They're using CIA bases, and now they're being trained by two men, Carl Jenkins and William Rip Robertson. These are two, I mean, Daniel, Sheehan, I mean Daniel Sheehan is funny when he describes this. He says, uh, but all of the, both these guys were fully, were full-time CIA employees with pensions and with full dental. I mean, these guys are as connected to the CIA as you can get, okay? And that's who's training them. The financing was interesting. Uh, the skim off those two Los, An or Las Vegas casinos, the Desert Inn and the uh, uh, Sands Hotel, they would take a skim off those two hotels, put the cash money, in suitcases, throw them in the trunks of fancy new Cadillacs and drive from Las Vegas through New Orleans down to Miami. They would deposit the cash in the Miami National Bank, which was owned by Meyer Lansky. From there, it would be laundered. The money would go to Geneva, Switzerland, to the International Credit Bank, and then it would be wired from there to the Banco Internacional in Mexico City into an account managed by an attorney in Mexico City named Manuel Igario. And then from that bank account, it would be paid out to these assassination team members and to pay for all the logistics, et cetera, et cetera. But all the money came from Las Vegas and got laundered through Miami, Geneva, Switzerland, eventually to uh, Mexico City. Now, why this is important is because when Watergate busts open in 72, Nixon loses his mind and there's tapes to prove it. In meetings in the subsequent days, right after the, uh, the break-in, he finds out that the FBI has found a check in Bernard Barker's pocket. It was actually a jacket pocket. When he was arrested, he had two things. Unfortunately for Bernard Barker, he had two things on his possession. He had an address book with E. Howard Hunt's, Hunt's name in it, White House phone number, and he had a check from the Banco Internacional down in Mexico City. And the FBI was wanting to go investigate this. Now, Really, it was just one man in the FBI, and his name was Mark Felt. Mark Felt came to be known as Deep Throat. He was the source for Woodward and Bernstein. He kept telling them, follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. He was the deputy director. The, the head director, Pat Gray, was sort of a figurehead. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had just died a couple months earlier, and so they quick put Pat Gray in. Pat Gray really didn't know what was going on. He was, he was not a, a lifelong FBI guy. He was a figurehead. He was a placeholder. They were waiting to put in a permanent guy. So the guy who was really running the FBI was Mark Felt, the deputy. He'd been there forever. And he thought that check was important. And he wanted to fly down to Mexico City and investigate that check. Until that check was revealed to the White House, 
that they were going to go investigate this. Nixon was pretty cool. But when he found out about that check and he found out about the name of the bank on that check, he lost his mind. And that's when he begins covering up and the tapes is eventually we got him on the verge of being impeached was the obstruction of justice and all that stuff. But we'll get into that later. But anyway, uh, it was that check from that bank. Well, this is the same bank that 10 years earlier is paying out this triangular fire team, which was nicknamed the S force. So in Nixon's mind, no one else knows this, but Nixon's mind, he's putting two and two together. This bank was paying my assassination team 10 years ago. This is the same bank connected to Watergate. I cannot let this investigation go further into this bank. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, I, I knew a little bit about Nixon and um, some conflicts going on between the director of the FBI. Because um, it was Hoover. Who, I think it was a good relationship, if I'm not mistaken, when Nixon, it was either Nixon or Johnson uh, towards the Johnson's Both. end of his admission. Both. Both. Yeah, J. Edgar Both. Hoover. Um, had was the was basically like the main guy of the boss but then even hoover towards the end started getting a little skeptical of um the president in general and i know nixon like there's a bunch of stuff with him like pushing the federal reserve all this type of stuff to you know during his re-election or during when he was going to be re-elected i mean he had a whole war on activists and everything war on drugs war on so much he was spreading himself way too thin and he thought since he was the president he could do what he wanted Man, the FBI director didn't like that. A lot of people didn't like that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good point. That's another really interesting discussion is is the war that Nixon. Another one of these secret operations against the uh, the war protesters and how he wanted to show them to be uh, disloyal, treasonous, drug drugged out kids that are hippies. You know, and he set them up in a lot of ways to 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 look that way. But anyway. This whole operation so far that we're talking about with the S-Force has plausible deniability. If you look at it, Nixon is operating as he, as the chair of this 5412 committee, though technically at the time when all this is set up, he is the vice president. But that's public knowledge. But what's classified is that he's chair of this committee. But then also you have to understand he is the presumptive nominee, probably in most people's view, he's going to be the next president. So you got a lot of power wrapped up in one person here, but he was smart. He went to, when he went to get this guy, this, this operation off the ground, he went to a private citizen, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes goes to a private lawyer, Bob Mayhew. Bob Mayhew goes to private citizens, mob guys, Johnny Rosselli, Sam Giancana, Santos Traficante. They get it privately funded from uh, hotels that the mob owns in Las Vegas. Uh, all the covert operatives, the, the assassins, were CIA, which means the CIA will go to go to the mattresses to keep their presence hidden, to keep what they're whatever it is they're doing hidden. We hear all the time about methods and 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 procedures, methods and and sources, and how they will do anything to make sure that their methods and sources are not revealed. And so all of this is off the book. The guys who are running this thing do it sort of coordinated. Frank Sturgis was a CIA guy. E. Howard Hunt was a CIA guy. Uh, the trainers, Jenkins, Robertson, these are CIA guys. This is, this is a completely clandestine classified operation. And that's the point of it. So that they all have plausible deniability if something goes wrong. So then Santos Traficante's telling this story. 
And he says, now, and he takes a, a break and he says, now, let's consider the timeline. What's going on simultaneous to this? All right. Uh, of course, we know that Nixon does not win the presidency. And that's a, another story in and of itself. But in July of 1960, before the election, the CIA briefs candidate JFK about a missile gap. Okay. And JFK believes them and runs out and starts campaigning on this missile gap, which means the Russians have more missiles than we, trying to scare the public. In August of 1960, the triangular fire team has been put together. It's, it's in training in Mexico. It's working on hitting a moving target for three locations. So this is all happening simultaneously. In September of 1960, okay, a month later, uh, candidate JFK is briefed about the presence of the 5412 committee for the first time. Right? He's still a candidate, but so they, they give him some classified info, but they do not tell him. And they do tell him about Operation 40. That's pretty well common knowledge, but they don't tell him about uh, the triangular fire team, the S force. November of 1960, Nixon, the election happens, Nixon loses, everyone's shocked at the results. So now everything has to be recalibrated. You think about it, the CIA was operating previously under the assumption that the guy who's been running all these operations from 52 to 60 is now gonna be the president. Now they got this new guy, he's a wild card. Who's this guy? What's he gonna be like? How is he gonna be to work with? And of course, in April, we have the Bay of Pigs disaster. That's their first go around with this new guy. They'd had instances under Eisenhower where operations were starting to go south, and they always knew they could go to Eisenhower, and Eisenhower would send in the Marines or the Air Force, the air support, to bail them out. They assumed that Kennedy would be the same. You know, as a president, especially three months into your first year, you don't want to have a major failure on your record. And the prestige of the United States is on the line. Kennedy holds firm, as we all know, does not order the air support. The Bay of Pigs operation goes belly up. It's a disaster. And, of course, he takes all the blame publicly. That's a respectable thing as a president to do. To take Absolutely. He does, like the, he does the honorable thing. He falls on his sword publicly but privately he declares war on the cia i'm going to scatter it into a thousand pieces and dust it to the wind yeah i know yes well and and that's what he said but then if you look at what he did he really did make war on the cia uh in june of 1961 he authorizes national security action memos 55 56 57 which takes the covert ops authority away from the cia and puts it under the joint chiefs which is the military, which means he he's commander in chief of the military. So now he's in control of the covert ops instead of the CIA. This did not sit well. If you've watched Oliver Stone's movie, when Mr. X is talking, he's he's describing this scenario. And he, it, this did not go over well in Washington. In June of 61, he flies to Vienna to have a summit. Khrushchev. This is his first time to go head to head leader of of uh, our Cold War enemy, and Khrushchev absolutely destroys him. Uh, in fact, Kennedy, in a quote later, says, he just beat the living hell out of me. And, and of course, those in the know realize that Kennedy, or at least it appears at that moment, that Kennedy is not up to being a Cold War adversary of Khrushchev. Khrushchev made mincemeat of him. Came away thinking JFK is inexperienced, he's young, he can, he's a pushover, and it's not a mistake 
that two months later, August of 61, they built the Berlin Wall because they thought, you know, this guy, Kennedy, we can do anything we want. He's not going to stop us. And he didn't. And the national security, you talk about the military industrial comp, lost their minds. How can you let the Soviets build this wall through Berlin? How can you let this happen? And JFK famously said and wisely said, hey, all they're doing is quarantining themselves. And in the, in, in the war of public opinion, the side that has to build walls to keep its people in is not going to win a lot of converts. We're not walling people in. They are. And so he let them do it. But our folks, are the Joint Chiefs, the National Security Council, et cetera, the CIA, they were furious internally with JFK. And they're starting to suspect that he is soft on communism. And that brings us to November of 61, when he fires the top three guys in the CIA. He fires uh, Dulles. He fires Cabell. That's a name that will come up again. And he fires Richard Bissell. These are all three guys that were in charge of the Bay of Pigs. He got his revenge. He took their covert authority away from them, and then he fired the top three guys. And again, this sends shockwaves through Washington. Then in November, that same month, he goes out to Seattle, and he gives a famous speech. In the speech, he says, the United States is neither omnipotent nor omniscient. We're only 6% of the world's population. We cannot impose our will on the other 94% of mankind. We cannot right every wrong. We can't reverse every adversity. And that therefore, and this is key, he says, there cannot be an American solution to every world problem. So he's starting to get his sea legs. You can kind of see where JFK is starting to grow a spine. The first year he was young and inexperienced and the CIA took him for a ride, but he's starting to get his sea legs. On, in October of 62, so fast forward almost a year, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this is where Kennedy really distinguishes himself. Not only does he stand up to the intelligence community who had given him the information about the missiles, he stands up to the Joint Chiefs. These are guys that are lions in the, in the field. They'd served under Eisenhower, Curtis LeMay. I mean, you're talking about some serious people that had won World War II. And, you know, I think when Kennedy first came into the White House, he was a little intimidated of them, especially of Eisenhower and that aura. You know, here you're talking about D-Day, the, the guy who led Normandy invasion. So and but now he's sort of and, and he's sort of finding his own way. He stands up to them. They all want to go in and invade Cuba and take out the missiles, which would have led to World War Three. And, and, and Bobby and JFK stand up to it. You know the story. They put in the quarantine. And right after that, after those 13 days, we survived. Uh, in March of 63, uh, well, before that, right after that, about a month later, he covertly or quietly authorizes. Now, it's interesting. He had told Khrushchev after the Bay of Pigs we are not going to launch any more invasions of Cuba. But he had promptly gone home because of the pressure he'd felt and, and just changed the code name. It was Operation 40, which was uh, infiltrating Cuba and trying to overthrow Castro before. He changed the name to Operation Mongoose and actually increased our involvement. So he lied to Khrushchev and Khrushchev called him on it, figured it out, and that's why he put the missiles in Cuba to resist a U.S. invasion. Well, this time, after the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we came to nuclear war, 
he means at this time. He goes back and he orders that those five bases, the one in No Name Key, the one this is where all the Operation Mongoose stuff is coming out of. No Name Key, the uh, the two in Lake Poncho Train, the uh, Swan Island, all these different bases. He says, close them down, close them down. We're they're out of business. We're not going to do that anymore, and risk a nuclear war. I made a promise, and this time I'm going to stand by my promise. Cruise ship. Well, this did not go over well with the Operation 40 people, the Cuban people, the uh, the CIA people that had invested a lot in these bases. Uh, fast forward to March of 63. Now we're in the pivotal year. March of 63 makes a, an announcement to close 52 military bases in 25 states. 21 of those are over, 21 additional overseas. So now the military is looking at Kennedy and they're like, this guy is soft. Instead of building up, he's building down. In March 63, that same month, when he finds out that the Operation 40 people, which is now Operation Mongoose, have not closed the bases. They've defied his order. In fact, they've launched attacks against Cuba. There's been a, uh, E. Howard Hunt launched an attack. Uh, Frank Sturgis lost them. Frank Sturgis launched an attack on a Russian ship in Havana Harbor. And E. Howard Hunt uh, put S-Force members on William Pauley, that same guy, the author of the Doolittle Report, on his yacht and sent it to Cuba to assassinate Castro. These things are going on after JFK ordered the bases closed. So he realizes, I don't even know who's on my side. So he gets customs officials and Bobby finds some uh, like marshals, U.S. marshals. I mean, he has to dig that deep to find some law enforcement people, put them on helicopter gunships, send them down to the five bases and burn out the bases. They arrest E. Howard Hunt. They arrest Frank Sturgis, charge him with violating the Neutrality Act. And, and so he has literally declared war on the CIA. I mean, he's using our forces against them to close them down. That was in March. Uh, in June of 63, he gives a famous speech at American University in Washington, D.C. And he's talking, this is the famous peace speech. And he says, what kind of peace uh, are, am I talking about? It's not a Pax Americana that's enforced by American uh, weapons of war on the USSR and its allies. He says, our most basic uh, common link is that we're all uh, inhabit, we all inhabit the same planet. We all breathe the same air. You've heard that speech. Uh, we all cherish our children's futures and we are all mortal. I'd rather my kids be red than dead. Yeah. I mean, he, he's basically saying we need to stop viewing these Soviets as these evil boogeymen. They're just like us. And for all this military industrial complex and the CIA that have been trying to paint this picture for years that the Russians are these evil boogeymen, that was an apostasy. That was heresy. So now we're to August of 63. It is announced. They have been negotiating secretly off the books. He and Khrushchev, through a back channel, have negotiated a test ban treaty. And this is shockwaves because we had the advantage at this time, the military-industrial complex, one of the reasons they didn't care if we had a nuclear war with the Soviets, because we had such a tactical advantage, but they know that given time, the Soviets will catch up. And now he's giving away our advantage by saying we're going to ban further testing. And there was a lot of suspicion the Soviets wouldn't 
abide by it. It was a surface it. ban. It was a surface ban. But Kennedy opened up backdoor channels between Khrushchev and uh, Castro, but he didn't really. And that's come. Yeah, that's but he, didn't, come. I mean, he didn't know if uh, with the one with Castro, he didn't care if the assassination plans worked or if they didn't. He was just trying to make two different paths there. Right. Right. Well, that's September. He begins authorizing people close to him to negotiate a back channel with Castro and in, uh, to begin the process. It hasn't actually happened yet, but he's reaching out to Castro and this is, this is new. And he's already reached out to Khrushchev. He's making these speeches about peace and let's accept the Soviets for who they are. They're people just like us. In October of 63, authorizes National Security Action Memo 263, which basically says we're going to pull out of Vietnam before it even starts. He authorizes the first 1,000 out by Christmas, and by 65 after the election, he'll have everybody out. Big, you know, that, and there's been subsequent proof from McNamara's book that the Kennedy government never intended to go to Vietnam. And so now the National Security Council and the, the military industrial conflicts and the CIA, they all realize, I mean, they've always, they've always suspected he was soft on communism, but if you take all these steps that he's taken in totality and put them all together, it looks like he is soft on communism. And so, so November, there's two prominent assassinations and it, it, it's really tied closely to that national security memo 263 when, when they realize we're not going to Vietnam, the policy in Vietnam was always going to be a problem because the American people did not support VM. In fact, the Vietnamese people didn't support VM. There's pictures of monks immolating themselves in the streets in Saigon. It's okay. So uh, if you the, the Vietnamese people had turned on DM, and there's all kinds of images of monks immolating themselves in the streets of uh of Saigon in protest of DM's government. That's the, the Rage Against the Machine cover album where the guy was yeah. on fire. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the American people saw that and they realized, why are we going to go fight for this government that its own people, his own people don't support it? So DM had become a problem. He was our guy, but he'd become a problem. So on November 2, 1963, the CIA uh, assassinates or makes its extraordinary rendition. They, may, they, they provide the opportunity for DM to be overthrown and assassinated. People don't realize that. That takes out problem number one. Now that he can be replaced by somebody who the Vietnamese people will support, ergo the American people will support. So that happens on November 2. Uh, on that same day, JFK is supposed to go to Chicago and there's a tip, anonymous tip. Actually, it wasn't anonymous. Somebody named Lee phones in a tip that there is an assassination team waiting to take him out on his motorcade. I mean, the exact same scenario as Dallas. The, uh, uh, the Chicago office of the FBI gets involved. And long story short, uh, D.C., uh, the uh, White House cancels the trip. But that happened on the exact same day. That Chicago trip was supposed to happen over the So you think about the ramifications of that. If that had worked, the two guys would have been assassinated on the same day. Pretty phenomenal to think about. Uh, on November 5, he makes his first back channel with Castro through Lisa Howard, who was Castro's girlfriend. There's suspicions he was, she was involved with Kennedy as well. But that was the liaison through whom uh, the communication took place. 
And the reason the CIA knew this was happening is because they had bugged Lisa Howard's apartment and the phone. They knew everything that she was doing. So that was common knowledge inside. That was November 5. On November 16th, you can kind of watch as the JFK gets stalked. On November 16, he goes down to Palm Beach for vacation. They have a, Kennedy has a compound down there, spends the weekend. And in the house next door, a group of Cuban freedom fighters either rented it out or took over possession of the house, whatever, and blasted Cuban freedom music uh, is on their loudspeakers as loud as they could, aimed at the Kennedy compound all weekend, just, just to harass him and let him know he was there or they were there. On November 18th, he goes to Tampa. There's a plot there. Santos Cops County finds out the last minute that the police have been tipped off. So he cancels that plot. And then on the 22nd, he goes to Dallas. And you know what happens. The same day that he is assassinated in Dallas, the CIA has delivered a poison pen to their contact in Cuba to take out Castro. Now, this is one of the 643 attempts. <laughs> it's, 800, it's 843, but yeah, dude, the explosive cigars, poison cigars. Yeah. So that's the timeline of, and according to Santos Traficante, direct quote, he says, the, these are the reasons the S-Force guys end up killing the president. They switched their target. They had trained to take out Castro. And somewhere in this timeline, they switched their target and they brought it home. And instead of it being a foreign operation, it was a domestic operation. It was a hit by the S-Force. Now, according to Santos Traficante, it was the S-Force taking matters into their own hands. I don't agree with that part. I think the CIA was... There's ample evidence to show that the CIA was in charge of this whole thing, but they used the S-Force. Of course, the S-Force was under the authority of the CIA, so it's impossible for me to argue or to understand how you could make the difference there. So now fast forward to 1972, all right? And this is, again, this is Santos describing putting all these puzzle pieces together. The DNC did something in May of 72, this is an election year, that really spooked Nixon. They hired Lawrence O'Brien to be the DNC chair. Now, Lawrence O'Brien had been, for years, Howard Hughes, D.C. lobbyist. And Nixon knew he'd met with Lawrence O'Brien 100 times to, to talk, hey, send a message to Howard, send a message to Howard. So he knew very well that Lawrence O'Brien knew all the secrets that Howard Hughes had. And one of those secrets was this S-Force, this assassination team. And he was afraid that, or paranoid maybe, that Lawrence O'Brien in his capacity now, as in his political capacity now as the DNC chief, was going to use that information against Nixon, publicly reveal the presence of this assassination team that Nixon authorized back in 60, against him in the campaign. And of course, Nixon knows that if there is any investigation of this S-Force, any of the names come out, there's any investigation, it's not gonna be hard to prove that they were involved in the JFK assassination. Indirectly, Nixon was involved. So this is scandalous information and Nixon is 
paranoid that Lawrence O'Brien knows it and is going to reveal it in the, you know, in the October surprise or whatever. So he orders the break-in of the Watergate uh, Hotel to not steal anything, but to plant bugging devices and to go through files and look for any information that O'Brien might have about the S-Force and about Nixon, anything incriminating. They went in once, twice, three times. The bug wasn't working. The fourth time when they got caught was the famous Watergate break-in. And James McCord had been sent in this fourth time because he was a bugging specialist. And he's the guy that's supposed to fix the bugs so they can listen in and find out what the DNC knows. And of course, he, they get caught. And uh, uh, James, you know, the phone number of the of E. Howard Hunt, the uh, the sequenced one hundred dollar bills and fresh paper, the the walkie talkie, the the uh, also the uh, check in the pocket that goes back to the bank. All this stuff comes out as they're going through the arraignment process, et cetera, et cetera. And F. Lee Bailey's firm gets hired to represent James McCord. Well, James McCord starts getting these offers from F. Lee Bailey and his attorneys saying, hey, if you'll stay quiet, you will get a presidential pardon from Nixon. And James McCord is suspicious that his attorneys are not working on his behalf, but they're working on the White House's behalf or the CIA's behalf. So he writes a famous letter to Judge Sirica. And in this letter, he basically spells out the plumbers. He talk, he, 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 he writes, he gives names, dates, details. He says this was all ordered by Nixon. This goes back to Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, which incidentally, this attorney, Daniel P. Sheehan, before he worked for F. Lee Bailey, he worked at the uh, at a law firm in New York City, and his biggest case was working on the Pentagon Papers. He'd read all 47 volumes of it. He'd seen the evidence that the CIA had launched an operation in Vietnam called the Phoenix Project, where they killed 20,000 unarmed citizens. William Colby. Yeah. Uh, so he knew all this. So when Santos Traficani is telling the story and James McCord is writing this to Judge Sirica, it all rings true. It's all puzzle pieces coming true. Uh, meanwhile, uh, they're looking for E. Howard Hunt because they, they've got this, this phone number and the walkie-talkie. They've also got a room key. Same guy, Bernard Barker, has a room key in another pocket to a Howard Johnson motel across the street from the Watergate. They go to the room, and there's E. Howard Hunt with the other walkie-talkie. He's the lookout guy with uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Coincidence. It's a coincidence. So they arrest them. So you got, you got these five burglars. You got G. Gordon Liddy. You got E. Howard Hunt. Frank Sturgis is one of the burglars. Uh, James McCord is one of the burglars. Bernard Barker is one of the burglars. And Nixon knows all these people. They all go back to the same people he put that were involved in the S Force 10 years earlier. And so he's scared to death. They're going to look into the backgrounds of these people. They're going to look into this check in this bank account down in Mexico City. And it's all going to, and, and interestingly, it, it, it sort of worked to his advantage, though. Uh, the, the political climate in D.C. was such that they wanted to get Nixon. And they saw, I say they, I mean the Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein, the Watergate committees. They saw blood in the water. This looked like a political corruption story. 
And so they're following the money to the point where it incriminates Nixon for the Watergate scandal. They find that the committee to reelect has paid for all these operations and stuff. And so that's as far as they go. If they had gone any further, it would have been a more than a political corruption story. It had been a political assassination story, but they stopped. They stopped. Now there's, there's a lot of suspicion that Woodward and Bernstein didn't go any further because their boss, Ben Bradley, was a CIA asset for many years, and he ordered them to stop. We don't know that, but <clears throat> there's suspicion that that is true. But uh, we get into the tapes. The tapes get revealed. And uh, on June 21st, 1972, this is, this is four days after the burglary, he meets with John Dean, the White House counsel. And he basically, this is the famous meeting where there's that 18 and a half minute gap in the tape. And everybody's always wondering, what was in that 18 and a half minutes? And when they asked John Dean, the Watergate committee, what was in that 18 and a half minutes? He, he said, I don't remember. But when John Dean got in legal jeopardy himself and had to hire his own lawyer, he didn't realize his own lawyer was being bugged by the FBI. And they have a tape as he tells his own lawyer everything that Nixon told him in that 18 and a half minutes. And what he told him is what Nixon told him about this story about Santos Traficante and the S-Force. And it was such explosive information. Nixon was telling his lawyer, John Dean, this is why we got to stop this. We got to stop this. We got to cut it off now because this goes back to something way bigger than Watergate. Everybody thinks Watergate's the big deal. This is nothing. Okay, so we got to stop this. And uh, that's what's in the famous 18 and a half minute gap. Two days later, on another tape, we hear another meeting between him and Bob Haldeman. And Haldeman comes in, he says, I got some bad news, Mr. President. Pat Gray over the FBI wants to investigate this check. He's being pressured by, by uh, Mark Felt. They want to go down to Mexico City and look into this check. And he says he wants to know, is this going to be a problem for the White House? And Nixon says, <laughs> there's a long pause in the tape, and Nixon says, if this gets out, this is a direct quote right off the tape. If this gets out, it would make the CIA look bad. And it's likely to blow the whole Bay of Pigs thing, which I think would be very bad for both the CIA and the country. Now, this leads me to my second question that I could never answer with my students. The first question is, why would Nixon do the burglary? Okay, we've answered that. He's, he's looking for information that Lawrence O'Brien has. The second question was, what did Nixon mean by making the CIA look bad? This looks like a White House operation. Uh, why would the CIA? Be? And the third question is the Bay of Pigs. What's the Bay of Pigs got to do with any of this? What, is the, what code is he using here? He goes on and further on in the tape, he says, this Hunt guy, talking about E. Howard Hunt, is the key. He's the lever. He will uncover a lot of things. You open that scab, there's a hell of a lot of things. This is Nixon talking. So that's the next question. Okay. Hunt was arrested for Watergate. So you can make the assumption he's a bad guy, but he's making it sound like he's a much worse guy. What, what else is there about Hunt underneath that scab that Nixon knows that the rest of us don't know? And uh, then in the meeting to discuss Mark Felt and his uh, desire to follow the money, they, they decide, you know, this, this check that was found in Bernard Barker's pocket, uh, this is the exact same bank. Nixon knows this, but Haldeman doesn't know it. John Dean doesn't. 
Dean knows it now, but Haldeman doesn't know it. So Haldeman is ordered by Nixon to go get John Ehrlichman. He says, go get John Ehrlichman, go to the CIA, talk to Dick Helms, the director, talk to Vern Walters, the assistant director, and tell them, and this is another direct quote, tell them, quote, the CIA, that's what he's talking about, if they, the FBI, open that scab, talking about the check, there's a hell of a lot of things that will come out. Tell them it will be very detrimental to all of us if this goes any further. In fact, he says, if you allow this investigation of this particular bank account in Mexico City to get pushed further south of the border, that's another question, further south of the border. So that means there's something else past Mexico City. It could trespass on some, quote, very sensitive, covert projects. And since you have these five men already under arrest, you ought to let it taper off at that. If they don't stop this, all the Mexico stuff about the Bay of Pigs guys will come out. This is on the tapes. The Watergate hearings, they're listening to this. Uh, Sam Irvin, Senator Sam Irvin, the chair of the Senate Watergate Committee is listening to this. He has Haldeman in. They subpoena Haldeman. And they said, you know, they, they want to know, what does all this mean? Because on the tape, Haldeman asks Nixon, well, are they going to know what this means? If we go and we tell the CIA people this, are they going to know what this means? Because we don't know what this means. And Nixon says, oh, yeah, they'll know what that means. So at this point in the Watergate hearing, Senator Sam Irvin stops. He looks up at Haldeman famously. This is an open hearing. You can find it on YouTube. And he says to Mr. Haldeman, he says, what did that mean? He's talking about Bay of Pigs. What's Bay of Pigs mean? What's these very sensitive covert projects? What is this all about? We're talking about Watergate. Nixon's obviously talking about something else. What is he talking about? And Haldeman lays a matzo ball right out in front of the Senate Watergate Committee. This is another opportunity. We talk about the first opportunity to, to blow open the JFK assassination. If Woodward and Bernstein or anybody had truly followed the money all the way back, we would have uncovered this in the 70s. That was the first opportunity. Here's the second one. Haldeman says to, to uh, Irvin, he says, whenever Nixon talked about Bay of Pigs, he was talking about the assassination of President Kennedy. And everybody got quiet. And for about 20 seconds in the hearing room, nobody said a word. It was dead quiet. And then they just redirected and went on to something else. The Bay of Pigs, whenever you hear Nixon refer to the Bay of Pigs in all the tapes, he's really talking about the JFK assassination, and he refers to it a lot. He is obsessively worried that this check, E. Howard Hunt, Frank Sturgis, all these guys are going to lead back to this S-Force, and he knows the truth about the S-Force. Now, the Senate was more keyed in and interested in the, quote, very sensitive covert projects, plural which is why in the 70 and 75, they open the church committee hearings to look into the CIA and all the projects. And they find a rat's nest of all kinds of illegal stuff that's been going on uh, under the guy. Yeah. MK ultras. And yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you talk about a cynical, just a diabolical program. So, you know, here we have, uh, what people think is a political corruption story, it's more than that. Now, 
to the point that some people make, well, these are rogue elements within the CIA that assassinated JFK. Rogue elements, the S4, rogue elements. That was Santos Tropicante's point. And it was convenient because it covered the mafia. It covers the CIA. It covers Nixon. It covers LBJ. It covers the military. It's basically what the CIA calls a limited hangout position. We'll reveal a little bit. And there's, there's some embarrassing details here, but it's not a systemic problem, right? But I think there's, there's a tremendous amount of evidence, and I can go through this evidence that points to the fact that this is a CIA-led and directed hit on JFK. Uh, first of all, the S-Force trainers were CIA guys. You can't argue that the S-Force acted independently. They were trained by Carl Jenkins and William Rip Robertson. These are CIA guys. There were memos from Bill Harvey. Bill Harvey is like the assassin's assassin. Uh, the, he's been, well, he has a very colorful history, just to put it mildly. But he, as a CIA officer, also a station chief located in Rome, Italy, there are memos from him about the assassination team. In November of 63, Bill Harvey took a special trip to Dallas, and he told his subordinate, when they asked, why are you going to Dallas? He says, quote, to look around. Uh, Bill Harvey is going to come up again in a minute. The actual members of the S-Force were paid operatives by the CIA. Frank Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt participated in the S-Force and were CIA operatives. These are not hidden. These are, these are not, uh, you know, this, is a, this is documented stuff. The S-Force members, when they signed in at Fort Huchaca in Arizona, signed in as, quote, government employees. Tosh Plumley, the pilot who flew them all around, was a Operation 40 pilot. He, that was his job. He was a CIA pilot. The S-Force was authorized by Nixon, which was, he was the chair of the 5412 committee, and he was the prospective president. William Pauley, the guy who authored the Dooley report, uh, Doolittle report, it was his yacht that took E. Howard's S-Force guys to Havana Harbor and dropped them off to go assassinate Castro. We know about that story because uh, 13 of them were arrested. They were, some were arrested, but Dick Billings was on the boat. Dick Billings wrote for the Life magazine. Life magazine was owned by a guy, a guy named Henry Luce. Henry Luce and and Paulie were best friends. And he promised an exclusive to Life Magazine when they brought the body of Castro back to the boat. And he was there to get pictures and write a story in Life Magazine, just like the Lee Harvey Oswald edition, was going to have this fantastic story. So Dick Billings tells the story on the boat. They're on the Paulie's yacht, Flying Tiger 2. And there's a guy on the boat named John Martino, and he's just ranting and raving about Kennedy. And he's this son of a bitch closed our bases. He took our, he did this, he did that. And he's just going nuts. And Paulie's trying to calm him down. He says, don't worry, John, don't worry. We're going to kill that motherfucker. <laughs> That's what Paulie said to Martino and Bill, uh, Dick Billings was there as a witness and wrote about it in his book. So we have that. And that's a CIA guy. Uh, 
the Sheffield Edwards, his presence at the meeting, he's the chief of security for the CIA when they put this whole S-Force together, okay? The S-Force members that were present, according to witnesses at Dealey Plaza, November 2, there's only one reason you'd have a group of assassins, you know, in a place in Dealey Plaza, for example, in, in, in a place, unless there's an assassination taking place, what other reason would there be for them to be there? Uh, JFK's wounds, front, side, back, all speak to a triangular hit. Uh, Oswald's unbelievable CIA connections from his stationing at Atsugi to his Russian language training. He was in the, he was in the fake defector program when he went to Russia. His readmission to the United States with no consequences for so-called giving secrets to the Soviets, etc., his New Orleans activities, where he's working under guys like Clay Shaw, Guy Bannister, you know, working with David Fair. These are all CIA people, okay? Uh, documented. And then the famous John McCone memo in March of 64, where he admits that all the things I just said about Oswald, he was in our fake defective program. We sent him to Russia on special assignment, blah, blah, blah. That's the CIA director admitting that in a memo to the Secret Service. Then you look at the manufactured evidence the CIA did, trying to put Oswald in Mexico City weeks before the assassination. That was all concocted by the station chief, David Atlee Phillips. It wasn't true, but it was an incriminating piece of evidence that was sold to the American people. Here's this guy, the assassin, alleged, visiting the Russian embassy, the, the Cuban embassy, trying to provide meeting with this this guy who's an assassination expert, Kostikov in Russia, and, and trying to arrange flight or an escape route after. This was all concocted. Even J. Edgar Hoover said, it's not him. His voice, his picture, it's not him. But that was all concocted in advance as they set up, slowly but surely, the patsy. And then you look at the, the uh, church, the, the tipping off of the Dallas police. This is something that's always amazed me is the Dallas police knew who they're looking for 14 minutes after the shooting. And the reason they knew it is because ONI gave them the name. They just seeded the name right into the Dallas police. They, they misspoke though. They didn't identify him as Lee Harvey Oswald. They identified him as Harvey Lee Oswald. And that's how we know it was ONI because that's how it was in their records. They gave a wrong address. They gave the address that a previous, uh, an address that they had, not, that, that, not where actually Oswald lived. So we know that was seeded right into the Dallas police. In 1977, we find out from the church committee that they've had, the CIA has had this executive action program up and running. They have names. In 56, the CIA took out Galindez in the Dominican Republic. In 57, they took out his pilot, Murphy. They dumped him into the, what they called the swimming pool, which was a very full of sharks. In 61, they took out Patrice Lumumba in Congo. In 63, they took out Diem in Vietnam. In 70, they took out General Schneider in Chile. And from 59 to the 70s, they tried hundreds of times to take out Castro in Cuba. So they know that, according to the family jewels, as you referenced, they know from the CIA's own internal documents that they have been on this war or on this covert op to kill foreign heads of state, which, of course, is illegal. The four names 
of S-Force members that were spotted in Dealey Plaza that day, according to witnesses. Luis Posada Carillas, Guillermo Nova Sample, Orlando Bosch, and Frank Sturgis, who, when he was apprehended later, was a self-confessed, he had bragged about it, he admitted it, he says, I was a CIA assassin. These are S-Force members in Dallas, in Dealey Plaza, on November 2nd. Not only were they there, Johnny Rosselli was in Dallas on that day. He was flown there by Tosh Plumley, who was also there. Now, you remember, Rosselli is one of the original S-Force uh, organizers. I mean, he was there at the beginning. Uh, Tosh Plumley was the pilot. He flew in a lot of these, these assassins. He flew in Rosselli. E. Howard Hunt was there. He admitted. Now, there was a lot of question about E. Howard Hunt. He denied it for years until his deathbed. And on his deathbed, he made a confession to his son. It's recorded. There's transflathering LSD on a driver's side steering wheel and hoping they would steer into traffic. That It doesn't even matter if you're doing that, but if you're talking like that, that's members of your CIA that are thinking like that. No, I know. Well, he admitted, and he even drew, there's a famous drawing where he drew a flowchart of how the JFK plot worked. And he admitted on his deathbed that he was recruited as a bench warmer for the big event which is what he was calling the JFK assassination. A bench warmer means that he is a ready and willing substitute if needed. So he was there. Richard Nixon was there. A lot of people don't realize this. He was at the Baker Hotel. There was a bottling convention. He was representing Pepsi-Cola. There was a big article in the paper the next morning, the Dallas Morning News, where he predicted LBJ was going to dump off the 64 ticket. And, uh, and then, of course, I told you about Bill Harvey. Bill Harvey was the Rome station chief. He'd been in Dallas that, that month to look around. Uh, according to an investigator looked into Bill Harvey, the best you can say about Bill Harvey is, quote, he was too young to have assassinated McKinley and Lincoln. This guy was involved in every hit of all those extraordinary rendition, that list of names I gave you, uh, up to and including JFK. Now, the best evidence, though, is from Marita Lorenz, because this is evidence that was under oath in a trial, and this gets lost. There was a Miami meeting. This is corroboration of E. Howard Hunt's deathbed confession. This is corroboration of the CIA's involvement. Her name was Marita Lorenz, and she, there, there was a, uh, a, a trial where Liberty Lobby owned a newspaper, and this newspaper was called the Spotlight. And one of their articles uh, years ago, they had said about E. Howard Hunt, he was involved in a conspiracy to kill JFK. So E. Howard Hunt was still in his denial phase. So he sued him for defamation and he won. But in the appeal, uh, Liberty Lobby hired Mark Lane. And Mark Lane came in there and they uh, got, they found a witness. And her name was Marita Lorenz. And she came in, she says that uh, in 63, she was a contract employee of the CIA. She said she was recruited at a meeting. Now, remember, this is all under oath. She says she was recruited at a meeting in Miami in 63 by Frank Sturgis to help with an off-the-board operation. Now, according to E. Howard Hunt, he was recruited into this operation in a Miami meeting in 63. And at that meeting, he said, it was me. It was Frank Sturgis. It was David Morales. We were all recruited by Bill Harvey, who was also going to hire the, the actual shooters. 
And he's, according to E. Howard Hunt, the guy who signed off at the top was LBJ. And here's Marina Lorenz corroborating E. Howard Hunt's story. She says, I was at that Miami meeting. She said, I saw uh, Frank Sturgis get paid cash payments by E. Howard Hunt for his work uh, with the CIA. She said, and furthermore, uh, she, Sturgis, and, and E. Howard Hunt, we were all employees of Operation 40 and the CIA. She said, in the fall, on November 21st, 1963, the day before the assassination, she and Sturgis traveled from Miami in a car. The trunk was full of weapons, and they, run, they were running weapons to Dallas. And they went to a hotel room, and they opened the door, and inside was uh, Hunt. So it's, it's Maria Lorenz and Sturgis in the car. They're running these guns. They get to the hotel. They open the door, and there's Hunt. Hunt pays cash money to Sturgis for the weapons. While they were there, there was a knock on the door, and the door opens, and it's Jack Ruby. And so she realizes at this point, she, this is her testimony in court. She says, quote, I knew this was different from the other jobs. This was not just gun running. This was big, very big, and I wanted to get out. I told Sturgis I wanted to leave. He said it was a very big operation, but that my part was not dangerous. I was to be a decoy. Before he could go further, I said, please let me get out. I wanted to go back to my baby in Miami. Finally, he agreed and drove me to the airport. Lorenz says that she told the FBI all of this after the assassination. The FBI told her, we don't want to know about this because these are CIA activities, not FBI. So they brushed her off. According to Lorenz, Sturgis came back to Miami after November 22nd and bragged to her, quote, we killed the president that day. You could have been a part of it, you know, part of history. You should have stayed. It was safe. Everything was covered in advance. No arrests, no real newspaper investigation. It was all covered. Very professional. So the Liberty Lobby lawsuit gets appealed. Mark Lane brings Marina Lorenz in presents this evidence, she's credible, and Leslie Armstrong, the jury foreperson, when she interviewed afterwards, says the evidence clearly demonstrated that Hunt CIA assassinated President Kennedy. This is the one of the only court proceedings that we have of the JFK assassination. Now, it's a civil suit. They reversed the decision so that Liberty Lobby won the lawsuit on appeal, and that, and that was the end of it. But you never heard about it in the news. So it's interesting to me. And if you take these two situations, I got into this through the back doors, I said, through Watergate. That was the gateway drug for me, right? That got me involved in the JFK assassination. It got me hooked. Both operations, and that's how you know they're operations, because they both have a cleanup man. Jack Ruby was the cleanup man in the JFK assassination. There could not be a trial. If there's a trial, this comes out. Trials are unpredictable. You can't control them. In the Watergate scandal, the cleanup man was Gerald Ford, who issued a pardon for Nixon. Now, Nixon resigned before he was impeached because federal law, if you're impeached and convicted, you lose your pension, you cannot you can you're liable for a criminal prosecution now as a, as a private citizen and that's a trial so he was convinced to resign so that he could keep his pension 
with the understanding that his number two, the deal that they had made is that if I resign, you will pardon me. 30 days after Nixon resigned, Ford pardoned him. He did his duty. You think about it, Ford, that's not the first time Ford did his duty. He was on the Warren Commission 10 years earlier, and he was the most vocal supporter of the Warren report to his death. He's the guy that moved the location of the bullet from the back shoulder to the neck to help. Six inches. Yeah, for the magic bullet, right? He, he made that happen. He did that. And then he went out and publicly supported the Warren report to the day he died. They knew, Nixon knew, that Ford could be trusted, that he would fall on his sword and do whatever he had to do to cover up whatever needed to be covered up, because he'd already done it. So when he picks, everybody was like, who's Ford? Why would you pick Ford? Well, Nixon knew who Ford was, and, the, and, and, and he needed somebody who would help him cover his tracks and help him keep his pension and then keep him out of a trial situation. And, of course, the national security in and, and Washington needed Nixon not to have a trial. There's a lot of information that's incriminating to a lot of different people. So nobody wanted a trial. Just like nobody wanted a trial of Oswald. So you have the two cleanup men. I want to finish with this, Robbie. I, I, you started off and you made a really good point about the uh, 63 being that line of demarcation. You know, all those operations prior to 63 were foreign. All those assassinations were foreign. But look what happens after 63. And this is what I try to get over across to my students how things have changed. In 63, obviously, uh, you have the assassination of JFK, all right? So then you fast forward a little bit and you get to 68 and you have the assassinations, plural, of Martin Luther King and Bobby. Now that means within a five year span, the three loudest voices for peace in America, JFK, Bobby, Martin Luther King have all been taken out. And they've used the same template in all three of them. Lone nut, you know, either no trial or rig the trial. You know, the uh, Sirhan thing is a joke. What happened with him? You know, that you're talking about MK Ultra and 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 the uh, his lawyer and this 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 service that he did him and all that. Anyway, so you have those assassinations. In 72, you have the domestic operation at Watergate. Okay. In 78, you have the House Select Committee. Go look someday at how the Blakey, the chair of the House Select Committee, how he was bullied by the CIA into pinning all the blame on the mob. All right. It's always the CIA always comes out of these things unscathed. That's 78. In the 90s, fast forward, uh, I jumped over 68, the Jim Garrison trial. The CIA was involved heavily in discrediting Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison is a hero. Jim Garrison is a hero. And the CIA tried to destroy him in the case. It says it in the documents. It says Garrison's attempts to embarrass the agency on the 2021 release. So, I mean, that's not good when they're saying that. And there's a file on David Morales. And in parentheses, it says weak link. I'm like, you know, your time's kind of up when they start commenting stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. If you go forward into the 90s to make it even a little bit more current, uh, you have uh, domestic operations in 92 at Ruby Ridge, 93 Waco. What the public was told about those two events and what actually happened uh, is not anywhere near the same 
that's 92 and 93. Fast forward to 2001, you've got 9-11, a lot of suspicions about 9-11, what happened there. 2003, the story of WMDs to justify a war in Iraq. WMDs, we find out later, never existed. Uh, and then in, in the uh, Obama administration, that's when things really take off as far as surveillance. You get into the uh, illegal surveillance of American citizens. These are all intelligence issues. Uh, then uh, in 2016, the crossfire hurricane operation against Trump to paint him as a Russian colluder. We all know that how oh, that's a hoax. Go look at all the intelligence operators involved in that, our FBI, our CIA, and foreign intelligence, which is, is amazing when you think about all the coordination that went into that. And then you get into the 19 through 21 COVID issue. And if you study that, you realize there are all kinds of signs that that was an intelligent op intelligence operation to take out Trump. And now, as recent as 2020, and you think about these operations, one of the big, the, the, the most obvious ones was rigging elections. In 2020, there's so many questions about that election that are still unanswered. And it's tied to the COVID and, and how the, the uh, balloting, the, you know, the, 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 the mail-in ballots and, you know, the typically, I was, I was watching a thing about LBJ recently, and they said, well, just tricks in the book, and the Democrats mostly, the Democrat Party mostly, is to stop the vote count in the middle of the night and wait to find out what your opponent ends up with and then find the necessary or needed ballots overnight and, and, and drop them in the morning. LBJ did it several times. That's how he won his first Senate seat. It's the oldest trick in the book. If you go back to 2020 that night, a lot of similarities there. Then you get into the 2020, the, the insurrection on January 6th. We're finding out now that was really an entrapment operation. The Governor Whitmer kidnapping plot, that's been decided as a result of a couple of trials that the FBI was involved in an entrapment operation. These are these are current things that are going on. And then here recently, you know, it, it's it's been all Trump. Well, anything they can go after Trump, you know, let's go down to Mar-a-Lago. We'll we'll come up with some what, some items that we think will get us a, a search warrant. We'll go down. We'll take out. This is continuing. Okay, these intelligence operations they got away with it. Sixty-three. They brought it home in sixty-three. And so there's just been all these domestically. Uh, these domestic operations ever since, and they continue. They're, they're going on as we speak, and we think, well, we get we, we get all these red herrings, you know, and, and we we chase these rabbits. Where if you study the JFK assassination, if you study the Watergate scandal, you study the operations and the methods, you realize they just use the same methods over and over and over again, and they use the media to distract, and they use. Uh, their power of, of, of government to, to, you know, to withhold documents. And, and you say, well, who's the conspirator here? Who's the conspirator? You know, when you're trying to find the truth, all you want to know is the truth. You don't really have any dog in this fight. The Warren Commission, you brought this up too. They, they started with a conclusion and worked backwards to fill in the gap. You know, most investigations work and follow the evidence and arrive at a conclusion. The Warren Commission started with a conclusion and then filled in the gap. 
Now, the interesting thing to me is there's been a switch. I don't think the intelligence agencies are political in a sense. I think they're sort of apolitical. All they really care about is power. And up to Obama, most of these operations were far right. They were about secure, you know, during the Cold War, it was about the boogeyman communism. It was always, we got to, we got to protect ourselves from communists. This, this guy's a communist. Or, or it was it was national security, those towards the Cold War. Then in 2000, it was the war on terror. It was always about security. It was these far-right issues. And then under Obama, it switched. And now the intelligence agency is, uh, everything is a far-left agenda. And you talk about surveillance, you talk about the, the going after Trump, crossfire hurricane and the Russian collusion and all those things. It seems to be that the intelligence agencies figure out, kind of like the old uh, Italians during World War I when they, they licked their finger and they said, who's winning? And so they started off on the central powers and then they switched to the Allies' side to get some of the goodies at the end of the war. In order, you know, if, if, they're, if nothing else, the intelligence apparatus, they're survivors. They are survivors and they know how to, to read the tea leaves. And they know where the power base is. If you want to know who has the power right now in our country, watch the intelligence agencies and who their targets are and who they're protecting. That tells you where the power base is. They know more than anybody. We're a little slow to the game, but all you got to do is watch them, and that'll tell you. And so I just think 63 changed our country. It changed our country. We, we are not the free country that we thought. And... If they had been caught, if at the, any of those steps along the way, someone had, and they tried. You can't say they didn't try. People have tried. But the, it's hard going against the intelligence community. Ask Jim Garrison. He was a district attorney, a duly elected district attorney. Ask the House Select Committee. That had all the weight behind it of the United States government. But both fell short. Now, both had huge contributions to make. But ultimately, as I go back to my original point, the CIA, the intelligence community are survivors. And they, they, they dribble out little bits of information, but they, you never get the whole ball of wax. And so they survive and they, to fight another day. And from 63 on, they've been rooting around doing it. The very thing Truman feared when he wrote that uh, editorial to the Washington Post, right? I think a month after the, like December of, of 63, his fear was that the, the CIA had become a covert operations. They, they were, they had become more than just information gatherers or analyzers. They were now uh, actually carrying out policy or making their own policy. It's a sort of a shadow government. And if you're a president, you, you think you're electing a president who can go in and clean things up. Chuck Schumer said it in 16 when Trump declared war on, in his own way against the intelligence community. Schumer on 60 Minutes, or it was one of these morning shows on Sunday morning, he says, I don't know why he's doing it. The intelligence community has a million ways to Sunday to get back at you. And so even as a president, you know, I better toe the line. Go back and look at all the presidents we've had since 63. How many of them are connected to intelligence? Most, most, or they got family involved. Yes. Or if they're not, they're by proxy. You think about 
you know, Ford was the Warren Commission guy. He was the guy who pardoned Nixon. He's in, in deep as they get. LBJ gave them their war. He was tied in with J. Edgar Hoover. They were neighbors. They were best friends. And you go forward to, to Nixon. Man, we've, I think we've, we've established Nixon. Yeah, we got that. Guy. Right? And then you go forward from there. You, uh, uh, from, there was Ford after that. One of the few that wasn't was Carter. Yeah. Carter tried to reform a lot of things, and, and he was a one-termer. That's something you'll notice about the guys who stand up to the intelligence community. They're all one-termers. Then you get to George Bush's or Reagan, you know, and, and Reagan gave nobody had it better than the intelligence community and covert operations than they did when Reagan was president. I'm not saying Reagan was a bad day. I'm just saying they got everything they wanted under Reagan. And including a scandalous Iran-Contra thing. But then, and then you go to George W. or H.W. Bush, he was the former director of the CIA. And then you get to Clinton. Clinton is tied in with, the, with, with intelligence going back to his days in Arkansas. There's a long history there. George W. Bush, maybe not himself, but his vice president, Dick Cheney, was the real leader of that outfit. And Dick Cheney was tied in tight. And that's when the WMDs happened and the war in Iraq. And then Obama. You know, you come to Obama, there's a long history there between Obama, his family, and the CIA. And now you got Trump was one of them who, who was unaffiliated. He's a one-termer. You know, they, he, he never had a day of peace. <laughs> and then you get to Biden. And uh, Biden was the longest-serving Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair, or Senate Intelligence Committee chair in the history of our country, 30-some-odd years. So he's tied in with intelligence. So you wonder, have we had a legitimate election, a legitimate president since 63? You start to wonder that when you study this. You start to wonder how, how much of this, you know, Trump used to say it rather, uh, you know, brutally, but he's talking about things being rigged. And, you know, it's a street term, but I'm starting to wonder if this, there's not some truth to it. It's, I mean, I, I, he laid out so much information. Um, I'm definitely gonna have to read your books. Um, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna audible them and any ones that I can order, obviously I'm going to get, um, but I know you got a class that's going to be starting soon as well too. And I appreciate the time you've given me to be able to talk on this. We've been talking for about an hour 40 already. Um, uh, this was great, dude. I'd love to have you back on. If you want to do a panel episode, please, I'm going to look into this whole, cause Traficante, all that was stuff I have not super dived into yet. Um, but is there a place where people can find your links, Mr. Jones? Yeah, uh, I have a website. I produce content for history teachers, and I also have my books on there, and I do a blog, and it's standardsplushistoryacademy.com. I'll send you the link, and you can include it if you want, um, but it's called standardsplushistoryacademy.com. And, of course, my books are on Amazon as well. If you just search my name. And I, I'm going to link it all in the description. Mr. Jones, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks for listening to this episode. Out of the